This is 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, where we ask leading architects, urbanists, designers and thinkers to reflect on the ideas, inspirations and interests that shape their practice and their views on the present and future of architecture and cities. It's 20 questions in 20 minutes with me, Owen Hopkins. Can you begin by telling me who you are, where you're speaking from, and what you are currently working on? My name is Joan Oero. I'm speaking from Cape Town, from my home, because my office is closed down now and we're working at home. We live in Hart Bay, overlooking a wonderful fishing village, and we are working on a number of different projects, including uh, a clinic for the Department of Health and doing a small museum and gallery for my wife's uncle, whose name is Dennis Goldberg, who was one of the original uh, Rivonia trialists, the only white man to be sentenced to life with Nelson Mandela, who died recently. And we're building a small um, museum and gallery to um, celebrate his life, um, but also to support local uh, cultural activities and so on. Plus, we're converting a 42-story high office building in Cape Town, the highest building, one of the highest office buildings in Cape Town, into a 800-bed hotel. <laughs> it's crazy stuff. One of the things that is, is, I suppose, quite unusual about what you do is that it's known internationally. You have an international reputation, but your work is, I think, almost all, if not entirely all, in South Africa, in, in one yeah. country, and, and in fact, in a, in a particular setting, which we'll, we'll get on to. But could we begin by talking a little bit about how you got into architecture? Because I, as I understand, it, it wasn't actually your first choice career. No, no, not at all. I mean, I, I had a very um, confused childhood and uh, went to an awful school in Durban, which was based upon an English high school, you know, an, an English public school where we had to wear straw bashes and the prefects, you know, beat their living daylights out of us. And I hated it. So it was a four year blankness in my life. And I wanted, I didn't know what to do. So I decided medicine, you know, it seemed to be what a lot of my other friends did. So fortunately got into medical school and lasted one and a half years and then dropped out. I couldn't stand it. And then by accident, I met a, a friend of mine who had been at school with me who was studying architecture at the local school of architecture. And he invited me to a party in the studio and I went there and I thought this is the coolest thing in the world. I mean, you know, you're studying and you're making models out of cardboard, you make beautiful drawings and everyone seemed really excited about the work they were doing. So I applied and um, I got accepted because I'd actually passed my first year of medicine. So it was like their, their, their kind of intellectual test. If you can pass first year of medicine, you should be able to get through architecture, you know, which is a silly kind of measure. But I mean, I'd never done art in my life. I'd never done a drawing before. I mean, it took me literally a couple of months in first year to understand what a plan was as a horizontal section through a building three foot above the ground level. I mean, I really battled with that idea, you know. <laughs> So it was quite, quite difficult for me, but, but I persevered and I really enjoyed it and found what I loved. So it was a fortunate coincidence. Unfortunately, my friend is no longer alive, but um, I used to ring him up once a year to thank him and uh, send him a good bottle of wine. <laughs> Your studies uh, led you to England and to Newcastle. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? How did that come about? Yeah, well, what happened was um, 
there was a very nice, a very good scholarship offered at University of Natal for overseas study. My wife and I both won it. My original idea was to go to Cambridge because my wife was accepted at Girton as an affiliate. I was going to study the decorative patterns of the pottery uncovered by Arthur Evans at Knossos and to try and draw a connection, can you believe it, between those patterns and the patterns found in West African pottery to prove that there was a connection. I mean, what did I know about it? <laughs> Anyhow, I got to England and I just didn't fit in. I mean, I just took one look at Cambridge. I thought this is not the place for me. So I fortunately managed to then shift my studies to Newcastle. And at that stage, they were running um, a program, an MPhil program called Housing for Developing Countries, run by a guy called Charles Coburn, a really nice guy, and uh, Miles Danby. And it just seemed like the thing that I should be doing. You know, So I, I registered for it and did my two years there and then returned home. But it was really great. And I was on a program with no native English-speaking people at all. Everyone on the program was foreign. A lot of South Americans and some Africans as well from Ghana and from Nigeria. So it was a wonderful experience for me to meet people from the South, you know, in a kind of fairly intense learning and teaching environment. So it was a very good thing. And you, you returned to South Africa. And, and so what were the kind of the first projects that you started with? How did you then make that transition from studying to practicing architecture? What, what happened was there, there were some interesting things. I, mean, I made contact when I was living in England with some people who were involved in the anti-apartheid movement. And um, it was, I had a big discussion with, my, with them and my ex-wife about whether we should return to South Africa or not. And I had a very strong sense that there was no point in waiting for the revolution. You know, there was work to be done. So I returned home. I was employed by, a, a, I was headhunted by a very large uh, practice in Johannesburg to head up their um, housing uh, unit um, because of my work that I'd done at Newcastle. And I lost it there for a, about a year and a bit doing just you know multiple housing units. It was at a time of stupendously high gold price. Everything was going through the roof in South Africa. I think I did about 2,000 housing units in one year. You know, it was just crazy. And then through the people that I'd met in England, I was... Um, asked to contact Desmond Tutu and uh, another bishop, David Inque, in Soweto. And I went to visit them and I, you know, said, look, I want to do some work, but I don't like the work I'm doing now. It's stuck in the northern suburbs and, uh, you know, it's not work that particularly enthuses me. And Desmond Tutu, who had just then been appointed the bishop of Johannesburg, said to me, well, look, there's an old man who has served the church very well as the diocesan architect for the Anglican Church in the Transvaal. He's just retired. And we're looking for someone to take his place. And why don't you, why don't I, why don't I appoint you to do that work? So I explained to him in as nice a way I could that I was in a regular church go. I had this curious Jewish Catholic background, you know, which didn't make me suited for anything. And I was going through a Marxist-Leninist phase at the time. And Desmond just said, look, you're ideal for the job. You know, this is the kind of person we want. So that then started me on another adventure because I then got appointed as diocesan architect. And I moved from the practice I was working at uh, to Fitz University, where Pancho Guedes was the head. He gave me a teaching job. And so I taught and practiced. And my first jobs were, I did a church in Soweto, St. Paul's uh, Anglican Church in Soweto for Desmond Tutu and David and Quinn. And then it just escalated and I just did more and more and more work. 
principally in Soweto, but also in townships right throughout the Transvaal. I mean, I did vestries for, uh, you know, houses for priests. I did additions and alterations to uh, churches. I did some heritage work on some churches that were designed by um, Herbert Baker and lots of new churches. And then through my church work, I started to meet people who ran NGOs and I started to then do community centers, resource centers and stuff like that. So it was a very rich period in my life. I mean, I, I just built buildings one after the other, you know, um, and it was really exciting. And it was at a time when, um, you know, South Africa was collapsing internally under the pressure of change. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, the idea was to make South Africa ungovernable. And so, you know, schools were under attack, you know, institu all institutions of learning, in fact, were under attack. And so the NGO sector stepped in with international funding and started to support enrichment programs for kids who weren't going to school and stuff like that. And that needed buildings. And I got involved in designing those buildings, resource centers and stuff like that. So it was really very exciting to find that, you know, joining together a, a kind of revolutionary zeal with making space where that could be acted out. One of the places that you've worked a long time and been, been associated with for a long time is, is Red Location. I think some yeah. of your best known work is there. How did you get involved with that place? And, mm. and can you talk a little bit about some of the, the work that you've been doing there? I'll go back a little bit. What happened is that from 1982 to the mid-90s, I never left South Africa because we had a cultural boycott and it was difficult to travel. And then I won an award, the Ralph and Ruth Erskine Prize from uh, Sweden. And that got me onto lecturing and traveling around Europe. And then I got to America. And um, I went to give a talk at a university in the Midwest. The next morning, I was offered a job. You know, they just said, look, you're the kind of person we want, an agent of change. You don't have any connection to America. So I went back to South Africa and packed my family up and went to live in America for five years, which was a disaster. I mean, I hated America. <laughs> God, it's an awful country. And the Midwest is just so unbelievably conservative, really. But what I did is I just entered competitions from the US. And one of the competitions I entered in South Africa was the Red Location competition, which I won in 1998. So that was great. And, and uh, it was a a beautiful idea, which was initiated by the city of Port Elizabeth, Nelson Mandela Metropolitan Municipality, in 1994, when the country was first freed, uh, uh, was liberated. And um, it had to do with this idea of saying South African cities are racially divided um, and spatially divided. And maybe one of the ways of transforming those cities, because they are, they're not very functional cities, would be to build an important set of buildings in a township where poor people live. So it would both stimulate economic activity there, but it would also draw people from other parts of the city to that part of the city and create a transformation of attitude. You know, people start to meet other people from different kinds of um, sectors in that society. So they chose um, a, a very um, important part in New Brighton Township called Red Location, which is really the site of struggle for many, many years. Um, it was very interesting because the first buildings that were built there were erected at the turn of the 20th century and they were prefabricated barracks from, the, from a British battalion who'd fought in the Boer War. They moved there. Within a few years, the British soldiers had moved out and black families moved in. Some of the leaders of our struggle for freedom came from there. You know, uh, Tabo Mbeki, our president's father, 
Govner and Becky was came from there. Raymond Schlaber, another Ravonia tri uh, trialist, was came from there. The first past laws were stages, so it had a very important place in people's memory. So we we went ahead and we built uh, uh, built a number of buildings, and it was seen as a twenty year project. And then, I think in about twenty twelve, we hit a problem, which was that. The people who had originally lived on the site where our museum was built had been relocated to a site next door by the city, and the city had built them some uh, uh, social, uh, you know, ec economic housing, and the housing had been incredibly badly built. I mean, to the point where window frames popped out of walls, doors fell out of frames, walls actually collapsed. And for about five years, that community had been battling with the city to come in and repair the houses. And the city did nothing. So in about 2012, I think it was, they said, fine. That museum, that art gallery, and that library are ours. You built them on our land. They belong to us, the community. And what we're going to do is we're going to close them down. And we're not going to let you open them until you fix up our houses. <laughs> so that led to a protracted seven-year battle with the city. Anyhow, we're now on track. A couple of months ago, the city proposed a budget to go in and maintain the buildings. And uh, we've been appointed to do that work. And then we'll be building further. So, uh, you know, further public buildings. There. There's an intention to build an art school and, and a small theatre. But it's a, I, I think it's a lovely story. And I want someone to write the story properly about it because I felt very proud when people said, it's like, they're our buildings, you know, and we'll do with them as we see fit. But the city also was weak in not being able to meet the demands of those people. They just sort of got scared and they ran away. It's a nice story about, you know, radical, radical politics, radical democracy in operation. And I'm really interested in, in, in the role that the architect plays in all of that, because it, as, you, as you've described, it's an incredibly complex, sort of hyper-politicized, quite fractious environment. Yeah. And the, the role that you play working with the community that is probably, and I suspect quite rightly, suspicious of outsiders, yeah. even ones who are professing or wanting to kind of do good in, in inverted commas. How yeah. do you go about engaging with, you know, the community? And, and that, in some ways, that word is not, is not kind of that useful because it kind of, it makes yeah. what, is, what is a very disparate set of views and voices seem as sort of one entity but how how do you get involved in somewhere like that and how do you kind of bring people with you it's as you said a very delicate balance but i think you know i mean i've never been a believer in sort of giving over a hundred percent to local communities and saying you tell us what you want i mean they knew what they wanted they wouldn't be talking to us they'd be doing it for themselves so they need leadership and guidance what was fortunate about me working say for the churches or working for NGOs or working for in Port Elizabeth for the city is that there were strong political and other structures in place, leadership in other words, which could take the thing forward. There would obviously be consultation, but there'd need to be a kind of point at which you can't meet everyone's needs. It's just simply not possible. And the one thing that I've always found has worked very effectively is to talk about the idea of public money, about, you know, that this, these projects come from a public purse, which has been gathered by our government. And they have to be very careful about how it's spent. And we can't waste the money, either through delaying the project or doing something that's not within the ambit of what's required. 
And people generally tend to be um, very uh, receptive to that, those kinds of ideas. I'm interested in, in the process of designing in a setting such as a shack settlement. How do you go about creating something that is distinct, has its own identity, but doesn't feel like a kind of alien invader as something yeah. that has been kind of dropped down from on high? And I guess it's, which is what you've, you know, you, you've, you've achieved the, a building that is sort of respects the place and the lives that people have fashioned in that place, but yeah. somehow acknowledges the sense that this is at the same time an incredibly impoverished, deprived area. Yeah. How do you approach that as a designer? How can you reconcile all, all of these incredibly complex challenges? I think, Owen, oh, the, the, the first thing is, is, is really about, you know, everyday practices and rituals. And you can't live in worlds. I mean, that, that's why I sometimes have a sense, I don't want to move out of South Africa and work anywhere else in the world, because actually, I understand my country, you know, and if you put me in Norway, I wouldn't know what the hell people are talking about, you know, I wouldn't have an idea of what's going on. So I think you first of all have to understand the, the cultural milieu within which you're working. Secondly, you know, I think in, in very impoverished communities, and I mean, it's something I started in the 80s, I, I, I worked on the basis that the shack settlements that you find emerging in cities, if you want to look for the beginnings of an authentic urban culture, that's where you'll find it. Because those are spontaneous settlements where people are free, of, and not really free, I mean, they do it out of an act of desperation, but they take charge of their own lives and they do something for themselves. And I've always felt that we don't spend enough time respecting the efforts of people to, to get on and make a life for themselves, whether it's to build a shack or whatever. And in, my, in the 80s, I did a lot of research looking at shack settlements and said, I'm going to treat these forms of settlement as and construction and design as authentic expressions of urban culture. I'm going to look at how they get done, how they get built, how materials are used, etc. And then as an architect, I'm going to try and find ways and means of elevating that use by employing my skills and knowledge to use them in better ways, but to show people that they can do it better next time. So it was very didactic in a way, if you want. And it worked. It really did work. You know, I mean, people understand that because it's something with which they're familiar. So it's, you know, everyday use. It's about respecting the way people work, work and make things in a local community. And then there are also times when you have to do something that, you know, is a bit different. And you explain it to people. I mean, for example, we made a, an archive library. The motor car industry is centered in Port Elizabeth. It's the Detroit of Africa. We assemble cars in Port Elizabeth and export them to the rest of Africa. And a lot of the um, components that arrive in, in Port Elizabeth come in uh, plywood containers. You know, And what they do is people take those boxes and they build shacks out of them. So what we did is we went and we got plywood panels and we cleared our archive library with exactly the same materials. And that was the most precious building that we did in the whole complex because it was where there were valuable books. People understood it immediately. They were really excited. They were, they were, they were proud that we'd done that. You've said somewhere that your work since 1994 has been about giving an expression to what South African architecture might be like. And I, yeah. and I wondered if you could kind of reflect on how successful that project has been, both in terms of your work and, and obviously the work of others as well. The second thing is obviously that moment was one of profound optimism. Speaking now over a quarter of a century later, how that optimism 
still lives on. Look, I'm, I'm an optimistic person. So there have been a lot of disappointments along the way, and I'm not sure South African architecture has made much headway since 1994. But I'm, I'm fairly, if you want to call it, orthodox modernist in the sense of, you know, one of the things I've always believed, I think it's right, John Summerson saying that the program is the essential component that marked modern architecture, that brought something new, and every man, every woman architecture. And so what I was always interested in is when 1994 happened, I thought, we're making public buildings in South Africa, how do we make them in a different way from the way they've been made in the past, you know, and, but not the way they look, but the way they're organized, the spatial, spatiality, the programmatic elements and how they interface with one another. And nothing like that has happened. We're building law courts like we've always built. They're exactly the same as we've built. We're building clinics like they've always built, hospitals like they've always been. Programmatically, we had a wonderful opportunity to really take on board a new way of thinking about how to live in cities and how to make public buildings in cities and the kind of activities that they could support. So, you know, what, what for example, what we're doing in Dennis Goldberg's, uh, we've called it the House of Hope. Uh, we're creating a museum come gallery. The gallery will show his art collection, which is very interesting. And then the uh, museum will be a story about his life. What's really interesting about it is right in the middle of the gallery museum, we've got a classroom. And it's going to be filled with township kids who are going to come in and learn how to do art, learn how to do hip hop, all kinds of things. And we've got a library above. So it's a kind of real mix of things. And, you know, we want people and it's going to be open to foreign tourists when they come to say, I'm sure they're going to come. They're going to walk through this library, you know, looking at Dennis Goldberg's life and having kids shouting and, you know, yelling and running around the place behind them, taking part in an art class. And that for me is a, a way of dealing with program in a kind of new way and seeing where it can take us. And I think, you know, that's what Dennis wanted. He wanted it to be a place where you could feel free. And the way you can feel free is to be yourself, whether you're a kid of six or whether you're a German tourist of 80, you know, you can just be yourself. And if you don't like it, you go and find another place, which is quite, you know, we don't really care. <laughs> so, we, you know, we, we, are, we are testing and trying to develop those ideas, but I don't like using words like cross-programming and doing, you know, because that sounds like so pretentious, you know, you get European Dutch architects like Kulas and others, they go on and on and on, you just want them to shut up, you know. It's just about people. People use space and giving opportunity for activities to take place where people can feel fulfilled through the things that they're doing. I mean, that is surely what we're meant to do. And if the space can be beautiful and the building can look great, I mean, I don't want anything more than that. Then I'm fulfilled as an architect. Well, I think that's a really wonderful place to end. So, Joe Nuero, thank you ever so much for being part of 20 by 20. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Stay tuned for more episodes, write a review or give us a rating, and be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform.